0: I'm delighted to be here. It's a huge blessing to be here, and it's a huge blessing to share my passion um, with people um, who are willing to listen. Uh, this is God's heart for the church. This is, this is where we're going in the future with the church. We're not there now, uh, anywhere in the world, but this is where we're headed. And I want to say once again, it takes a lot of courage for a pastor to take this on. Um, because when you start bringing people who have challenging behaviors and disabilities in, things have to change right? Things have to change. And so oftentimes there's pushback. I remember earlier on in the ministry at our church that uh, there was a little boy with Down syndrome in the second grade class and he took out a pair of scissors and cut a little girl's hair a little bit in the second grade class, right? Well, you'd think, you know, that he had started World War III or something. What is this? The children with disabilities cutting the hair. And my response was, I bet that's the first second-grade boy who's ever cut the hair of a second-grade girl in class before, you know? But because it was an individual with a disability, there's all this pushback. Um, So I, I would ask you, it's going to cause change to include people with disabilities, but I think the change is a good thing, and there's a degree to which it's a corrective. So please be patient with your pastors and try to grow into the change that the Lord will facilitate through this in your church. We want to talk about... 1 Corinthians 12, and uh, it's a beautiful chapter. But you know, if you think about it, it's kind of a ridiculous chapter. You got hands talking to feet, and you know, eye, ears talking to eyes, and bodies that are whole ears or something. It's just kind of a funny passage on some time on some level at the sa- at the same time. But it's a beautiful passage because it. Sorry, I got to walk around more here. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful passage because it illustrates the way that the body actually is, right? It's, that's what's so cool about it, it's just such an interesting metaphor that kind of really points out the way things are. So let's just dance with it a little bit. I'm going to mostly be in verses 12 through 27, and I'm going to cherry-pick some. I could spend a whole long time touching on all the verses, but I'm just going to do things to try to illustrate some certain uh, aspects that I want to pull out. So if you turn there, that'd be awesome. First of all, it says, how are we one body? It talks about that. How are we one body? How is it that I'm from California and I'm one body with you folks who are over here in in, uh, beautiful Belfast? Well, the reason we're one body is because we have one spirit. We share the same spirit. That's what unites us and makes us one. So independent of who we are, independent of where we are, we have one spirit that makes us one. And we're not one member, but we're many members. Uh, That's kind of obvious on some level as well, but it needs to be stated. We're not all the same. We're not just one. We're many, many different members. Now, I want to jump around a little bit. It's interesting down in verse 21. It has this, once again, this silly thing where the eye says to the hand, you know what, pal? I don't need you. You know what I'm saying? You're always picking things up and doing things. And sometimes you guys got to wash yourself because you're just a mess, right? The eye talking to hand saying, I don't need you. right? And then it also says that the, um, what do you call it? That the, why am I stammering here? The head says to the feet, that I don't need you. I mean, I can understand why the head would say that to the feet, you know, why don't you take a bath every so often, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it, you're kind of a mess. The head says to the feet that I don't need you. Now, why is it that the eye says to the hand and the head says to the feet that they don't need you? Because there is a haughtiness there. There is a kind of a, a feeling that you need to be something different that you are. I don't accept you the way that you are. I see myself as better than you, and therefore I say to you, you need to change to be more like me. We see that, unfortunately, in a whole lot of different ways. Even in churches sometimes, a person with a disability will come, and our only response to them is to try to put our hands on them to heal them. Now, There's nothing wrong to pray for healing for someone, right? But sometimes that motivation becomes exclusively just to change a person, and the indication is that this is not God's plan for you to be the way you are. You need to be more like me, a hand, or you need to be more like me, a head. And as a result of that kind of an interaction, you end up with the the kinds of things that you see in verse 15 and verse 16 there, where the foot says, heck, I guess because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. Or the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. I can talk to you so much and tell you how disappointed I am with you that you can ultimately get to the point where you see yourself, I guess I'm not a part of the body because I'm not who uh, you want me to be or who is accepted. Now, it's not hard to make this connection between that kind of indication or that kind of interaction in individuals with disabilities, right? I told you this is something new, it's something that's just developing. How many hundreds of years have people with disabilities been told, I don't want you, or I don't need you, or I've been able to exclude you because you don't have anything to offer? And it comes to the point where people with disabilities begin to see themselves exactly as it says here where they say, I guess because I'm not a part of the body, or I'm not a hand, or I'm not a foot, I'm not a part of the body. Not only does that happen though to individuals with disabilities, it happens to their families. There, there is a, there's a famous author, some of you who are sociology types might have read, Mervyn um, Goffman, he wrote a famous book in the 60s called Stigma. And he talks about how there is this thing called courtesy stigma, and that is that if you're a person who kind of is either related or hangs out a lot with individuals who have a certain type of devalued characteristic, you tend to take on that characteristic as well. At least in the way that you're referred to or treated by the community, you're treated with that same type of stigma. And that's what often happens with families. The hardest part of, of having a disability, people with disabilities will often say, is not my disability, it's the way I'm treated because I have a disability. And parents experience that same kind of thing. So parents kind of get the, get the impression, too, that I don't need you from the way that we interact with them because of the changes potentially that their family member brings. And they come to see themselves as, I guess I'm not a part of the body either because of this relationship that I have with the people who, person who I love in my life who has this characteristic that has been devalued. So it's a very, very difficult thing that we have to deal with. And the thing that happens is that we have excluded people with disabilities for so long, we don't have the foggiest idea what they would bring if they were with us. We've already mentioned several times today about how they're indispensable, and I agree with that by faith, but if you said to me why they're indispensable, there's a part of me that says, I really don't know. I have to take it by faith because they're not here for me to understand what indispensable nature they bring. I like to tell a, little, a kind of little story sometimes where, imagine I took my nose off and put it in a jar, Okay, do I still have a nose? Yeah, it's it's over there in a jar. So my nose is over there in the jar, and I live for a long time without my nose. My nose is in the jar over there, and I'm going through my life, and I think this is the way life's supposed to be. And my nose is over there, and he kind of thinks that's the way it's supposed to be too. He's over there separated in a jar. And I'm going about my life and just doing whatever. How would I ever know that there's aromas floating around in the environment if I didn't have my nose connected? what, what What would possibly give me an indication that there's aromas in the air? if I didn't have my nose connected, right? So then I think, oh, my heck, heck that, that's my nose over there. I haven't seen you. How you doing, my friend? And I take my nose and I put them back on. And all of a sudden my nose gets reconnected and finds out what it's like to be a part of my body, and my body finds out also what it's like to have a nose again. So I put my nose back on and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, my gosh, that bread smells amazing. In California, we don't get a lot of rain, and I'll tell you, one of the greatest fragrances ever is the the fragrance after the rain. In California, it's like, oh my gosh, the fragrance after the rain, it's so amazing. So when I reconnect my nose to the body, I find all these beautiful things that I hadn't realized before that can be present. But the other thing that happens when I reconnect my nose to my body is all of a sudden I'm like, ooh, that's pretty bad. All of a sudden, I smell myself. I smell that I maybe I smell like urine, or maybe I smell like a I need a shower or something like that. When I reconnect my nose, my body, I discover some ugliness about myself too. When I take the part that I've excluded and reconnect it, yeah, I see some beautiful things potentially, but also recognize the ugliness that's in me as well. I see the fact, I see the way that I don't love my neighbor when I bring in people with autism. How I'm so willing to, I'm I'm quickly willing to reject them. It's interesting how the mere presence of an individual with disability will reveal so much about the people around them. It's it's, The story of the Good Samaritan, you've probably heard the story of the Good Samaritan a million times. I bet you never heard it the way I'm going to tell you. So Jesus is asked, who's my neighbor? And who does Jesus respond about? He talks about a man who's beaten and left for dead. Okay, I actually had a dear, dear friend who died about two years ago who was a man who was beaten and left for dead. He was a man who um, was, in, was on business in Seattle, he was a computer specialist, he was in business in Seattle, he went to Cary Park in Seattle, you know, that's where they had the beautiful pictures there with the space needle and everything in Seattle, you might have seen. But he went to Cary Park, saw a couple guys there that were hungry, he took him out to dinner, took him back to Cary Park, and they beat him and left him for dead. As a result of being beaten and left for dead, he spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair, had a traumatic brain injury, and brain stem injury, and hearing problems, and all kinds of stuff. So, this man who was beaten and left for dead, minimally, he had a a very, very severe physical disability at the time of the beating, and it could be that he is someone that experienced a physical disability for the rest of his life. So, interestingly, when Jesus asks, who's your neighbor, or who's my neighbor, he starts by describing a person who is totally dependent on everybody about them because he has such a severe physical disability. Never heard that before, I bet. Any other thing that happens is that we see in the story, Here's this guy, he's laying there, he's beaten and left for dead. He's not doing anything, He is just laying there doing nothing. Maybe he's bleeding. He's just laying there. And then we see the first religious leader come by and sees him and he's kind of like, oh heck, i got to go around here. And he goes a different way and goes around him, right? And then the next religious leader comes, maybe he just finished a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13 or something like that, you know, about how we should love our neighbor. And he sees that guy and the heck with this and he goes around him. What do you notice? The mere presence of a person with a disability reveals the character of the people around them. The mere presence reveals the character. Will I be someone who will love my neighbor, or I will not be someone who will love my neighbor? And then you see the, the Good Samaritan come, and the, the, once again, it's the incredible beauty that you see when someone loves their neighbor. It's just amazing But his character reveals that. One last thing on the Good Samaritan, just as an aside, too, related to your church. It's funny because uh, I teach graduate students and I have them do an assignment in uh, one of their classes where they have to go to their pastor and and ask questions of their pastor. Um, And I've been doing this for, for like 15 years and so I think pastors in the community are kind of tired of my graduate students coming and asking them these questions. But they'll come and ask the pastor, are people with disabilities a priority for ministry in our church? If they are a priority for ministry in our church, what's the evidence that they're a priority for ministry in our church? If they're not a priority for ministry in a church, why aren't they a priority of ministry in our church? So the students will go ask these pastors, and i always tell them, this is what the pastor's going to say to you. The pastor will say, we love all people the same. We love everyone the same. doesn't matter who they are, they come to our church and we love them just the same. We don't separate, we, don't, we love them all the same. Anybody who comes to us, we love them all the same. And the, and the students come back and say, gee, that sounds pretty good, he loves them all the same. I said, no, no, that's nonsense. right? Imagine if I'm the good Samaritan, and I see this guy beaten and left for dead. And I say, oh my gosh, man, you're in bad shape. Look at you. You're all messed up. You know what? Right down the road here is a, is a hotel. And that's where I'm staying. So if you go to that hotel down the street there, I'm going to hook you up, baby. I got money. I'll pay for you to stay there for a while. You can get all better. We'll get doctors, whatever. All right, so I'll see you there in a minute. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Like, no, he has no, he has no ability to get there. Right? So for me to say, if, I, if he comes to me, then I will serve him. That's an easy thing for me to say because he has no ability to get there. So individuals with disabilities, as far as I know, they don't have the ability to have driver's licenses here. Maybe mild people with mild disabilities, but they don't have the ability to have So why are they not here? They have no ability to get here, right? Many of them are, are kind of hidden away or excluded in residential facilities, which can be some very, very dark places. And so they have no ability to get here. So that's why they're not here, right? It's not because they don't want to come. It's because no one will bring them. And it's the same with many people with physical disabilities as well. You don't see people with physical disabilities potentially not because they don't want to be here, because they can't get here. And yet we oftentimes pontificate about how much we love everyone the same. And anybody who would come here, we would love them. Well, that's great, because those people have no ability to get here. One of the frustrations with my own church, my wife and I have been doing disability ministry at our own church for 25 years. And it's interesting, we're going through a pastoral change right now. And, the, and in, in that process, our church has said, the defining characteristic of our church is disability ministry, because we've been doing it for so long. But it's fascinating, if I ask people to, to give people rides from the community, nobody will do anything. Right. So there's a, there's, a, there's a huge kind of blind spot there. The passage then goes on to say, in verse 23, excuse me, verse 22, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. This is interesting, because it doesn't say they are uh, weaker, it says they seem weaker. And if you think about the notion of seeming weaker, it's very much of a sociological concept that is different in different places. And once again, it doesn't say they are weaker, it says they seem weaker. And it starts by saying, on the contrary. So if I look at someone and they seem weaker, Paul's saying, no, no, you got it wrong, baby. They're indispensable. You see, there's a notion of power here. I'm a haughty person with power. I look at you and you seem weaker and I dismiss you and do all the kind of things that come with dismissing you. But in reality, you that I am dismissing are someone who is indispensable to me. Think about that. If I am indispensable to you, think of the power that I have over you. So there's a notion of power here that's undisplayed or unexhibited because the person is dismissed. It's it's the nose thing again. I have no idea how your church will change if you totally include people with disabilities here. But I promise you that it will change. Why? Because they're indispensable to you, and it'll cause their power to be evidenced here in a way that'll change us. It'll make us something that's more like we were intended to be. You follow me on this here, a little bit here? And then it goes on to talk about the parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow greater honor on them. Once again, I look at somebody and I think, you don't look so honorable to me. Think of the haughtiness there. But even Paul says, we think they're less honorable, so he includes himself within that, that description of other people. But we see people that we think are less honorable for whatever reason. Sometimes they make life choices that are bad life choices, and they end up becoming less honorable in our eyes. Maybe they get addicted to alcohol or something like that. But oftentimes the reason they're less honorable is just because of the life circumstances that have hit them. A child with a disability is born to them, or they themselves develop a disability, and as a result of that we look on them and see them as less honorable. But Paul says our response to people who are less honorable should be that we should treat them with special honor. All right? Well, let's think about it. how would that look? How would that look if I were to treat somebody with special honor? The Lord gave me a great example with my daughter. I got a wonderful daughter. She's married to a husband, Joel. My daughter's name's Amy. They live up in Seattle. Amy's a lawyer. Joel's a chemist. I don't even can't understand what he's saying half the time, but he's a chemist. <clears throat> and one year uh, they were going to come uh, down and visit us at Christmas. We don't get to see them as much as we'd like. And so they were going to come, and they said at the last minute, oh, we can't come. Oh, I'm so sorry. So we sent all their Christmas gifts up to them, thinking that they're going to stay up in Seattle. And so my wife and I are sitting, oh, okay, well, we've got to make alternative plans. The kids aren't going to be here, and, and so we have all the plans and whatever, and everything's laid out for the holidays. And the first thing we were going to do was go to a Christmas party on Christmas Eve. <clears throat> so we go to the Christmas party. Who do you think's there? My daughter, come on, stay with me here. <laughs> My daughter and her husband were there. Well, when I saw my daughter, I said, you know, I really wasn't expecting you to be here. You know, and I haven't cleaned your room, and I really don't have the time to clean your room right now, and I have other things in mind that I wanted to do. Um, there are some pretty decent hotels in town, and the bus system is not as bad as it used to be. So I hope you can figure out something to do while you're here, because I just have plans the way I do things the way already when i going to do them for the holidays. No, what happened? Everything was on the table. Everything. Everything was on the table. Everything could be taken off the table. Why? Because my daughter was here with her husband, Joel, right? And I want to show them special honor. And I show them special honor by saying, everything's off the table now. All right, now, so imagine a family comes in here right now and walks in here and has a child with autism. What am I going to say? You know, we really didn't expect you here. <laughs> we don't have programs for children with autism, you know, and, Oh, heck, you know, we got to change the way we do it. I hope you're parent. I hope you're going to stay with the kid the whole time they're here because we really don't have people interested in hanging out with your child. Well, no. When that person with autism comes in and says, You know what? I didn't expect you to be here, but now everything changes. Why? Because I want to show you special honor, the honor the Lord tells me I should show you. You see, it's interesting that in the church, one of our problems has been we've been confronted with two things. We've been confronted of keeping things the way that they always are, the status quo, the way they all always are. I mean, just, just stop for a second. Perfectly quiet worship services, right? Perfectly quiet worship services, that's the way we like it, right? <clears throat> or we can include people with autism and other kinds of kind of issues that they face, and they have to get up and they're walking around, and maybe they make noise and all that kind of stuff. And so we can always keep things the way they are, or we can change to include people who have been devalued and who are really kind of make demands on us to love them. And so what we choose to do is we're going to keep things the way they always were and we're going to reject this person. It's interesting in Mark 7, if you go to Mark 7 at some point, Jesus talks about this thing called Corban, and I don't need to get into Corban, but the the passage says in Mark 7, 8, it says that Jesus says to the people, the scribes and Pharisees in regard to Corban, he says, you exchange the commands of God for the traditions of men. Exchange the commands of God for the traditions of men. And then down in verse 13 he says it again. You exchange the commands of God for the traditions of men. And then he says, and you do a lot of things like that. What happens when we have this traditional worship service and these traditional programs the way that they've always been, right? Those are our traditions. Someone comes in and challenges them. Our response is to say, hmm, what's more important, my traditions or the second most important commandment after loving the Lord with all my heart, soul, and mind to love my neighbor as myself? I think my traditions are the most important thing, and then we reject those people. We can't do that. We can't do that anymore. We need to change our traditions such that they include people um, who God loves, who have been created in the image of God, who are indispensable, for goodness sakes. You with me? This is not easy, right? This is not easy. And there are people who will leave this church, potentially, over the fact that the church is seeking to change traditions such that people who have been devalued and excluded in the past will, will now be here. I just want to let that sink in. I've had the chance to do a sermon. Uh, <clears throat> give me just five more minutes. I had a chance to do a sermon at my church. Um, in 25 years, I like to joke, in 25 years I've been asked to do two sermons in my church. And I could understand the first one, but not so much the second one, why they would ask me to come back again and do a sermon. But it was funny, the second time that I, that I came, because I was teaching, our Sunday school class didn't meet. We have a Sunday school class called the Light and Power Company meets every Sunday. We have as many as 80 adults with disabilities who are there and then they go into regular worship service and whatnot. Um, and so this guy and his family came and he has uh, autism, uh, very challenging behaviors and whatnot. Couldn't go to the Light and Power class, so he came to the regular worship service. So now there's this guy, he's about as big as me, only 60 pounds heavier, and sitting in the congregation, and I'm doing the whole sermon thing up here, and all of a sudden he starts making noises, <laughs> ooh, noises. And, uh, you know, of course, everybody's like, what the heck is that? You know, looking around, because they hadn't heard the moaning noise before. And I stopped and I said, do you hear that noise? I mean, and people are like, duh, of course I heard that noise. That's that's what I'm looking at. What the heck's that about? Do you hear that noise? And everybody's kind of like, yeah. And it's like, that's what inclusion sounds like. Right? Inclusion, a lack of inclusion, forgive me for being so harsh. A lack of inclusion sounds like this. You with me? Inclusion means that people are getting up and walking around and people are a, bit, a little bit noisy and people have other kinds of needs and so forth. There's a famous church, a big church in Southern California. You might even know about it if I told you about it. On the back of all the pews, it says, if you get up and go to the bathroom, don't come back in because it's too disruptive. <laughs> that's, a, that's how we do church because our traditions are much more important than loving our neighbor as we should. But the thing that, I think the thing that we want to facilitate here and everywhere is cl- clearly we set these things up as programs, and programs are great, and we need to have programs. But people with disabilities are not the objects of programs. People with disabilities are the subject of relationships. You know, the very best thing that you could do as a congregation in terms of disability ministry is to find an individual with a disability and choose them as your friend. You can do few things more important than that. You want The you know, greatest thing you could do in disability ministry as a congregation is choose a family that has an individual with a disability and choose them as your friend. You have no idea how socially isolated families of kids with disabilities are. I'll tell you what, if you ask them, they'll tell you, yeah, we are. But you don't know, because we don't ask. But if you were to find a family and embrace them and choose them as a the friend, it's the greatest thing you could do in terms of ministry to a family. You know, in verse 26, it says, if one member suffers, all suffer with it. And if one member's honored, all rejoice together. The first part says, if one member suffers, all suffer with it. And I, in response, is, no, they don't. We don't all suffer with it. There's a whole lot of people suffering out there who are impacted by disability and devaluation, and we don't suffer with them because they're not in our life. But if we were to choose to be with them, if we were to actually... It's like, you know, you go to the beach, and you wade into the water. You, Ooh, it's cold at first, and then you go in a little deeper and a little deeper. That's what it is when you interact with people who are going through suffering or going through challenges. When you first step in with them and see what their challenges are, you're like, whoa, this water's cold. And then as you get used to it, you wade in more and more, and you stand with them in their suffering. One of my favorite Bible characters is uh, John the Baptist. I love John the Baptist. He's awesome. And one of my favorite reasons why I love John the Baptist is what happens towards the end of his life. If you look at Matthew <clears throat> Matthew 11, uh, starting at verse, uh, 20, at verse 2. Before I read that, let me read verse 11. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one, Greater than John the Baptist. So, what is Jesus basically saying? At least up to that time, there was no greater human being ever born besides John the Baptist. Here's an incredible man, the greatest man ever up to that time, is John the Baptist. But what happens towards the ends of John the Baptist's life when he starts facing the unknown and he's up against his death? You know, this, guy, this is the guy who said, Look, here comes the, here comes the Lamb of God, right? Here's the guy who baptized Jesus for goodness sakes. Right? What does he say towards the end of his life? <clears throat> Verse 2, And now when John heard in prison the deeds of Christ and sent word, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, This is John This is John the Baptist's words. Are you the one who's to come? Or should we look for another? Look where he is. Right? His life is so desperate. The greatest man that Jesus describes in the history of the world is in losing his faith, right? Because of the life circumstances around him, Are you the one, or is there another? Jesus, uh, in his kindness, says, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their light, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf are here, dead are raised, so forth, and the poor have grown up and preached to them. What does God do to comfort John? He sends people to him to encourage him to encourage him about who Jesus is, right? You have a child born to you with severe disabilities, and all of a sudden you find yourself alone, almost like in a prison cell, like John. You find yourself alone, and now your prayers start to sound like, are you the one? Are you really the one? I feel alone here. Are you the one? Or is there someone else I should be looking for? Right? And when we go to people and say these kinds of things, um, we encourage them. A friend of mine says, we help them to be obedient, right? When life hits people and they're, they're, threat, they're, they're tempted to, to, to turn away or to doubt God or whatever, when we go to them in their suffering and are with them in their suffering, we help them to be obedient, for goodness sakes. What an incredible calling. What's your calling in life? My calling in life is to help people to be obedient who are undergoing tremendous suffering or tremendous challenges. You know, God's sovereignty is challenging. God's sovereignty is challenging for families. God's sovereignty is challenging on some level for children like Micah and Peter. And I mentioned their names. Forgive me, I usually don't mention people's names in that regard, but I was given permission to mention their names. So the lives of Micah and Peter, potentially, and their families our families that are going, they're going, changing because the sovereignty of God is hard. Do I believe it's within God's sovereignty that those children are here? Absolutely, absolutely. God either directly causes it, like he talks about in Exodus 4, or God permits it. They are part of his sovereignty, but God's sovereignty is not always easy. If God's sovereignty is easy in your life, what do you think that means? Go big, build, build bigger barns? You know, buy a nicer house at the beach? Is that what that means, if God's sovereignty is easy in your life? If God's sovereignty is not so hard in your life, that means that you are supposed to go and suffer with those who suffer so you can make God's sovereignty a little easier for them to handle in their own lives. God's sovereignty is challenging for the children, it's challenging for the the families, but it also should be challenging for you as you enter into the suffering of others. So what can you do? what can you do? You see people with disabilities in the community, you see people with disabilities in the church, what can you do? You can ensure that they're connected and they're not excluded. You know, p- parents will say, you know, uh, I'm not a part of the body, and you go to them and say, can I help you? And they say, no, I don't, you know, you don't need to help me, I, I'm fine, you don't need to help me, you don't need to help me. What are they basically saying? No, I'm not a part of the body, uh, you don't need to help me, I'm not a part of the body. Uh, when I go to parents, I say, can I help you? No, you can't help me. And I said, well, I won't be helping you Friday night at about 6. Right? I'll come by your house and won't help you Friday night at about 6. So you decide what you're going to do when I'm not helping while I'm sitting there with you and your family and your son while you go out to the grocery store or something. Right? Don't take no for an answer. Don't allow them to exclude, to be excluded, and don't allow them to exclude themselves because they will learn. They will, be, they will learn from what's been communicated to them that they are a burden to you. That's what we will communicate to them. And so when I ask if I can help them, they'll say no, because they're reflecting what I have told them, that they are a burden to me. You should develop friendships, wade into life's challenges, wade into the suffering that they'd experience. And here's the thing that we don't get, and I say stuff like this, and people say, oh, what a nice thing to say, you're so sweet. When I wade into the challenges of people who are suffering, you know who benefits from that? Me. Me. right, Me. I get to be the face of Christ in their life. It's like prayer. You know, when I pray, who benefits? Or when I pray, who benefits? Me. When you when you wade into the suffering of others and the changes that happen in your life as a result of that, you become more like Christ. You change to become more like Christ and the more that He would want you to be. And it's not, and, and that's just, I'm not a person who tells you nice, sweet things just to make you happy. I'm a person who will tell you the truth. That's the truth. You will change. God will, make, God will form a corrective in your church, and God will make you more like himself when you wait in the lives of people who are suffering, and you suffer with them. Well, let me pray. You guys are awesome to listen to me. I could go on and on. This is, this is the passion of my heart, as you can tell. God bless you in this church. It, 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 when the changes that come, please, the changes that come when you have people with severe behaviors and such, it's not going to be easy. Things are going to have to change. Things are going to be different. Please try to have grace in that as those changes happen within your congregation. All right, let me say a prayer, and I think that's it. We'll call it today. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, man, what an honor to be your follower. What an honor to be able to serve you. <clears throat> for some of us, life's not so hard, Lord. Your sovereignty for us has been the kind of thing where we haven't faced challenges. And for other, others of us, it's kind of like, my gosh, our heads are barely above water and we're just struggling. Help us to see each other, Lord. Help us to, help us to see the ones who need our support and to kind of step out of our comfort and, and wade into the lives of people who are struggling and who are suffering. That's what you are called us to do, Lord. We're, like a, we're one body. We should be feeling the suffering and the pain of others. And when we don't, it sounds like disobedience to me. Help us to be obedient, Lord, in terms of the way that we love our neighbors. This churches and these pastors in particular, Lord, are showing great courage in trying to move forward in this area of ministry. I pray for favor, Lord. I pray for favor for them. I pray that you would guide them, that your spirit would, like, be all over them and help them to make good decisions and whatnot. But, Lord, this congregation needs grace. They need to be able to learn grace, and they need to be able to show grace. And that's not easy. It's hard to love your neighbor, Lord. That's why you command us to love our neighbor, because it's hard. But would you give this congregation a super measure of grace to be open and accepting and loving of people who will challenge them with their behaviors? Lord, I'm so honored to have been able to be here, and I, just, I pray that the words that I've said will and somehow have challenged and blessed people. Would you guide us and keep us safe through this week as we reflect on the things that we've heard? In Christ's name, amen.